Good morning. My name is Hugh, and I'm one of the pastors here. We are about five months into a year-long sermon series in Samuel and Kings. We're looking at Israel's kings uh, in, in Saul, David, and in Solomon. And I was having a phone conversation with one of our church members this week, and I was confessing that I was feeling anxious about our task, that it's like, I don't know how to cover three chapters in one sermon. And his counsel was, just don't get too specific. <laughs> so I'm going to offer some general observations from our text this morning. In the 2002 movie, Catch Me If You Can, Tom Hanks ran after Leonardo DiCaprio. Hanks was the federal agent in pursuit of the brilliant con man played by DiCaprio. He had made millions of dollars for himself by committing check fraud. Further, he was really an impeccable poser. He managed to work as an airline pilot, an attorney, and a doctor, all without receiving any of the proper training to do so. He's the original and best proponent of fake it till you make it. The important lesson for us is that DiCaprio shows that it's possible for us to give every impression of being genuine and yet still be a counterfeit. Let's pray and we'll get into the word. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a speaking God. You have disclosed your character to us. It's only because you've shown us who you are that we can say, behold our God. We know that you're a merciful, gracious God because you've both declared it and you've displayed it in your son. Lord, give us eyes to see your word this morning. And we want to be found to be obedient. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to try to do some quick summary of the three chapters. We begin in chapter 26 where there's a similar story to what we've seen in previous chapters. Word reaches Saul, hey, I know where David is. I know where his guys are hiding. And Saul rounds up his 3,000 soldiers and they go after him again in hot pursuit. David has his own spies and so he knows that Saul's camped nearby. Now, in chapter 24, we saw where Saul happens upon David in the cave. This time, David does something really reckless. He goes into Saul's camp. The text says that, that all the men are asleep. Saul's lying in the middle. All the guys are ringed around him. And, Saul, and David goes all the way into the middle. And his guys are like, the Lord's given him over to you. Just let me stab him just once. I won't have to do it twice. But David again rejects that. He's, and he says, let's just take the water jug and let's take his spear and we'll go. And then David gets outside of camp and he starts trash talking. Hey, you guys are bombs. You haven't protected your king. I could have easily taken his life. And Saul recognizes David's voice. And we read in verse 21. Saul responds, I have sinned. Come back, my son, David. I will never harm you again because today you considered my life precious. I've been a fool. I've committed a grave error. 
Then we get to chapter 27. We don't know how much time has gone by, but we see David is down bad. We read in verse 1, David said to himself, One of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel and I'll escape from him. On the one hand, this is the obvious step to take. If someone has tried to murder you at least three times, at each time, oh my bad, I won't do it again. Yeah, you better get out of town. You better get out of Israel, get into Philistia outside of Saul's reign and preserve your life. On the other hand, God has made these promises to David. We saw last week how Abigail is pushing him to trust in the Lord. And he's questioning his stand in Israel. He's, will the Lord come through? How am I going to survive if Saul keeps on chasing after me? And so he's willing to move away from God's people, to go to enemy land so that his life will go on. He arrives in the, the royal city of Gath. This is Goliath's hometown. And he comes to King Achish of Gath and says, hey, I've got to flee from Saul. Can you give me some refuge? And so King Achish gives him a town of Ziklag. It's 25 miles south of Gath. And David stays in the area for 16 months. We can read about his exploits starting in verse 8. David and his men went up and raided the Gershites, the Gerzites, and the Amicalites. From ancient times, they had been the inhabitants of the region through Shur, as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he did not leave a single person alive, either man or woman. But he took flocks, herds, donkeys, camels, and clothing. Then he came back to Achish, who inquired, Where did you raid today? It's just the funniest thing. I, I, every time I read this, it's like, How was your day, honey? Where did you raid today, honey? David replied, the south country of Judah, the south country of the Jeremelites, or the south country of the Kenites. David did not let a man or woman live to be brought to Gath. For he said, or they will inform on us and say, this is what David did. This was David's custom during the whole time he stayed in the Philistine territory. So Achish trusted David, thinking, since he has made himself repulsive to his people Israel, he will be my servant forever. David is being intentionally deceitful here. He's 25 miles away from where this king is. And when he asks, where'd you go raiding today? He just says, oh, I was raiding down in the south area. He's attacking the peoples that were condemned in Deuteronomy, lands that were meant to be conquered in Joshua, but they never were. He's taking promised land. He's making himself rich. He's making his soldiers rich in all this plundering. He's wiping out Philistine people. But the way he's reporting things to Achish, he thinks that David is killing his own people. That's why he thinks he's got David in his pocket He's like, if Saul's hot and heavy after him in Israel, and now David's killing his own people, I own him. He's mine. Chapter 28 begins with the report. 
that the five Philistine kings have mustered their armies together to form one great army to attack Israel. And Achish says, now you know, David, what this means is that you're going to have to fight on our side. You're going to have to fight against Israel. And then the text shifts direction very abruptly. It leaves the reader in tension. How is David going to get out of this mess? In verse 3, the focus shifts away from David back to Saul. Saul, in seeing the Philistines mass against them, he calls his army together. And he's up at a higher elevation and he's looking out over this mass of Philistines gathered against Israel. And he's terrified. We read in verse 3. By this time Samuel had died. All Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his city. And Saul had removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid and his heart pounded. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. Saul is desperate for some direction of what to do. He needs some good news. Samuel the prophet is dead. We've just been reminded of that in verse 3. God wasn't speaking to, to Saul in dreams. He wasn't speaking to him through the Urim, which I read one commentator this week that said this is like a, an Old Testament version of rolling the dice as a, an attempt to discern God's will. So then Saul in desperation says in verse 7, Find me a woman who is a medium so I can go and consult her. His servants replied, there's a woman at Endor who is a medium. Now, go back and look at verse, uh, verse 3. Saul actually did something commendable. He sent away all the mediums. He banned all the spiritists from functioning in the land. This is a grievous sin that God has consistently forbade his people from engaging in. He strongly condemned. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 18. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not imitate the detestable customs of those nations. No one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire. Practice divinations. Tell fortunes. Interpret omens. Practice sorcery. Cast spells, consult a medium or a spiritist, or inquire of the dead. Everyone who does these acts is detestable to the Lord. And the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. Though these nations you are about to drive out listen to fortune tellers and diviners, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do this. This is one of the practices of the evil Philistine people. And it's difficult for us with our Western minds to take this seriously. Ah, this is just the stuff of movies. In reality, these are dark and demonic activities. We must never engage in things like this. They're evil. Saul's men, they know of this woman that's a medium in Endor. She has... She claims to have the ability to bring dead spirits back from the grave. 
Now, Endor is six miles away from where Saul is and behind enemy lines. And so he has a decision to make. Do I really want to travel this way to put my life on the line? How desperate is he to hear some word? Well, he disguises himself. He gets a couple of guys and they make the trip to Endor. They travel to her by night and he makes his request. Here, Saul, the law maker, becomes the law breaker. We read in verse 11 and 12. The medium asks him, who is it that you want me to bring up for you? Bring up Samuel for me, he answered. When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed. And then she asked Saul, why did you deceive me? You're Saul. Why does she scream? One option is that she's actually surprised that Samuel came up, that she was a scam artist and she was not expecting him to show up. Another option is that Samuel shows up before she goes through her ritual to call him up. The prophet is speaking first again. Either way, she's immediately able to recognize both it is Samuel and she recognizes that the man making the request is King Saul. And then Samuel speaks to Saul. Verse 15, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Samuel asked Saul. Saul's reply, I'm in serious trouble. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what I should do. Verse 16, Samuel answered, Since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. You did not obey the Lord and did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. And the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. Immediately, Saul fell flat on the ground. He was terrified by Samuel's words and was also weak because he had not eaten anything all day and night. Saul says, the problem is big. I don't know what to do. And Samuel's reply is basically, what did you expect? You've been asking for God's direction all this time and you haven't listened to it yet. You have not obeyed. You're going to die. Our first observation, don't settle for a bad king. And for those of you that want to tweet out the sermon points for some reason, we'll use hashtag not my king. <laughs> Social media is a big problem for a lot of reasons, especially in its ability to divide. How can something that's purported to bring people together have such an ability to divide? Differences of opinion become the basis for disunity. To be sure, we are a politically divided nation. A number of years ago, the hashtag NotMyPresident began trending as people were reacting to Trump's election. Now people are saying all sorts of unsavory things about our current president, Joe Biden. Leadership 
is really tough. It's easy for those being led to find faults in their leaders. And this is especially so when we're looking to human leaders to provide what only God can give. It's no wonder that people get frustrated. I get frustrated when I read about Saul and David in these chapters. Saul is an absolute mess. David has moments of sterling righteousness, but then he does these crazy things where we're really left to wonder, is this what we've been waiting for? We remember from the beginning of this sermon series that the people wanted Saul to be king because he was so impressive. He's a head taller than everybody. He's huge. There's nobody like him. He looks like the genuine thing, but over the course of the book, he reveals himself to be a counterfeit. Then we get to David and his character is far better than Saul's, but David definitely has his own issues. We have to look at leaders like this. We have to say to Saul and to David, this is not my king. These human kings may look genuine, but they weren't the promised king. Not big, tall Saul, not bold warrior David. We're too easily fooled in misplacing our trust. We can't trust our eyes. We think that because people look genuine, then they are really so. These kings looked the part, but they were counterfeit. Israel had imperfect king after imperfect king. Imperfect leaders across the board. And they're this creates this corporate longing in Israel. When is the Messiah going to come? When is the real king going to show up? And in a terrible irony, Jesus arrived as the long-awaited genuine king, but the people rejected him because they thought he was a counterfeit. When the genuine king showed up, they rejected him because they thought he was a fake. He didn't look the part. He wasn't impressive. Isn't this Joseph and Mary's kid from Nazareth? Where does he get off talking the way that he does? Rebuild the temple in three days. Are you out of your mind? Isaiah prophesied this would happen 600 years before Jesus' birth. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. John continues with this exact same theme in the opening words of his gospel. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. I've heard one preacher explain it this way, that it's as if Jesus is a master artist, and through his paintbrush, he's able to create an incredible, beautiful world. And he's also able to create people. He fills this world with his creation. And somehow the artist figures out how to enter into this painting. And when the master artist shows up, 
that people don't recognize him as the artist. They don't receive him as master and they reject him. We are still fooled by counterfeits today. Fooled by things that only appear to be genuine. This is what the world does when it declares something to be good and right and true. Even if it's in direct opposition to what God declares to be true. When Satan tempts us, he presents the bait, but he hides the hook. It looks good, but it's a counterfeit. Our flesh foolishly thinks that we can find joy and satisfaction outside of Jesus, but there's no joy to be found, only emptiness there. By faith, every day we choose that Jesus is the real, genuine king. We have to remember that there is no life found in counterfeits. I love that we sing the song, Jesus is better. The repeated phrase in the song is, Jesus is better, and it's followed by a prayer. Make my heart believe. This is a wonderful prayer when you're reading the scriptures. God, make my heart believe this. When you're feeling temptation towards a certain sin, God, make my heart believe that Jesus is better. When you feel that you've been forgotten by God, make my heart believe that Jesus is better and he's a better promise keeper. Let's keep our eyes set on Jesus, the genuine king. When we trust in Jesus by faith, we become kingdom citizens. Now, the way that we publicly announce this allegiance to King Jesus is in baptism. We're going to baptize in three weeks. If any of you have made a profession of faith where you've turned away from sin and you've turned to Jesus, you need to follow that profession by being baptized. Baptism is not a spiritual box to check off. It is a declaration. It's going public of a personal internal faith in Jesus. When someone goes into the water, they're saying, I identify with Jesus's death. It's my death too. When Jesus was buried in the grave, I was also buried in the grave. The old me is dead. But praise God, we also identify with his resurrection. That we're united to Jesus in his resurrection. So baptism declares, I belong to Jesus. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Jesus is my king and I'm going to follow him all of my days. Baptisms preach a good sermon. Baptism is not something like a cutesy little thing for kids. It's a thunderbolt declaring Jesus is king. We become citizens by faith, but we declare that citizenship in baptism. A close corollary of this idea is that the biblical expectation for kingdom citizens is that they regularly gather with other kingdom citizens and that they commit themselves to those citizens. There is no way for us to separate the doctrines of salvation and the doctrine of the church. The grace that saves us is the same grace that makes us a people and sets us in the middle of this people. Author Jonathan Lehman calls the local church an embassy of heaven. Now an embassy represents its home country in a foreign land. He tells a story of when he was in college and studying abroad that his 
When he was out of the country, his passport expired. So that put him in a precarious spot. So he goes to the local embassy and gets all the paperwork sorted out. And he makes the point that they did not make him a citizen that day. They simply recognized and affirmed what he already was, an American citizen. In the same way, the church does not and cannot make a Christian. The local church merely recognizes and affirms kingdom citizens. So far as we can tell, you're a citizen of heaven. You talk about Jesus like he's your king. It sure seems to me that you're living like a citizen of heaven, not like somebody that's from around here. As far as I can tell, you're trusting him and that you love him. And so the church says, we're glad to corporately affirm you as a kingdom citizen. We're excited to say that we're responsible for you. We're going to look out for you. It's now our job to see you built up and conformed to be just like Jesus, who's our king. Doesn't that sound wonderful? To have a great big family that's looking out for your good, a great big family that's concerned with your holiness to be made like Christ, that's church membership. If you're here, if you're a regular attender, but you've never made a commitment to join, I would just ask you to consider why not? The church affirms citizens. The church also encourages citizens when they're down. Don't give up. Keep running. Keep looking to Jesus. We encourage one another to set aside counterfeits and to trust in the Lord. The church is responsible to correct wayward citizens. Conversation might look like, hey, what you're doing is out of step with the gospel. What, what you're doing is preaching a bad sermon about Jesus. Please repent. Please consider your actions and how it affects Jesus' reputation and sometimes, very sadly, the church has to remove someone that's not willing to repent. This is not us unmaking a Christian. Again, we don't have that power. The church is simply saying, we can no longer affirm that you're a citizen of the kingdom like we could before. We really have no credible reason to think that you are a citizen here. So then the church moves forward calling this person to trust in Christ. Because we're not very good at picking our kings, we have to seek King Jesus both personally and corporately. The church is meant to help us not fall for counterfeits. The church is meant to help us follow the true king. Secondly, don't ignore the warning signs. Don't ignore the warning signs. There are scores of biblical passages that warn us about our life and our faith. First Timothy 1, Paul's going to say to Timothy, you've got to watch your life and doctrine. You've got to be careful that you have faith and a good conscience because some have rejected these things and they've made shipwreck of their faith. In Acts chapter 20, Paul's gathering with the elders of the church in Ephesus and he begins, be on guard. I'm going away, and I know when I go away that, that wolves are going to come in and attack. And I know even from among you, false teachers are going to rise up and twist the scriptures to lead the sheep away. So he says, be alert. 
Warning passages are important. They should be heeded. The point of a warning is so that you avoid the catastrophe that was laying ahead. Church, we can read Saul's life like a giant warning passage. What can happen if we are content with merely looking genuine without being concerned about being genuine? Over the course of the book, Saul is a study in compromise and fear. In chapter 10, when it was time to anoint him as king, he was hiding among the luggage. Chapter 13, he failed to wait on the Lord when it was time to offer a sacrifice before the prophet Samuel got there and he did it himself. Chapter 15, God commanded Saul to wipe out all the Amalekites, but he kept King Agag alive along with all his valuable stuff. Chapters 18 and 19, he tries to kill David with a spear. Chapter 20, he tried to kill his own son, Jonathan. Chapter 22, he killed 85 priests because they helped David. Chapters 24 and 26, he's pursuing David. David can't believe this is still going on. You're running after me like you're a king and you're chasing me a flea. And then we've seen chapter 28 that he's consulting a necromancer. The chronology of his life across this sermon series reads like Romans chapter 1. That the further Saul goes, the farther he gets away from God. The further he deviates from God's perfect command. We trade the truth for a lie. We exchange the worship of the living God for the worship of created things. We assert we know better than God. There's an old saying that says... Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. Last week I challenged us to consider how small decisions today determine what we'll be like in decades. Saul cut corners. He made pragmatic decisions rather than truly obeying the Lord. And look at the trajectory of his life. We can look back at Saul, uh, Samuel 15, where Samuel rebukes Saul for disobeying God. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. Now, at the time, you might be tempted to read that and think, oh, come on, Samuel, divination? He, he just, you know, he, made, he messed up. He made a bad decision. He, he didn't want to burn all this stuff because it was valuable. He, I keep it. Well, now we know rebellion now, over the course of a 20-year uh, kingship, this is, what, this is what it ends up. This is the, the trajectory. Small decisions made over a long time made Saul what he became. So the question is, what can we do to heed this warning in Saul's life? I want to propose two things. First, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Saul only sought the Lord for benefits, not for relationship. There's always all this, this talk of spiritual uh, beliefs, spiritual looking activity. But ultimately, Saul really did not have a vibrant relationship where he's trusting the Lord. Imagine you get a text message from a friend that you haven't talked to in some time. Uh, a dear friend. Maybe it's your your favorite niece or nephew. They say, hey, I'm going to be in town in a couple of weeks. I'd love to see you spend the whole day with you. And you think, oh, well, that's heartwarming. And then the text bubble pops up again and says, 
because I want to talk to you about asking you for some money. You're like, oh, well, that's not so heartwarming. And then another text comes in and says, well, you know, now that I think about it, why don't you just Venmo me some money? And that would be the easiest thing. And I wouldn't even have to make the drive to Greenville after all. We, this is how Saul relates to God. I'm desperate to hear from you, God. I need you, God. Do I do this or do I do that? I, I need to know what's going on. But he's treating God like an ATM. I really don't want you. I just want what you have to give. That's not... That's how every world religion operates. We do so that we get. It's always transactional. But our God needs nothing. He's not served with human hands. He is an overflowing fountain that gives of himself continually. He's not glorified when we do more good stuff than bad. He's glorified when we love him. He's glorified when we're trusting him, when he wants to meet our needs. He wants to be close to our pain. What does the, the, the relationship, what should it look like? Like a father loving and protecting a child. And like a child loving and trusting a father. We have to seek the Lord because we're never going to drift into holiness. We're never going to be carried by the current of the world and our flesh and end up in destruction. We read passages like Psalm 42.1. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. We can read passages like this and actually get really discouraged. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we don't always desire God like a deer longing for water. Oh, well, since this is not like the, the disposition of my soul, then I might not need to, to seek the Lord. I'll, I'll just wait until I do feel this longing and then I'm going to seek the Lord. Well, we need to read past verse 1. I'll read verse 1 again for the context. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long people say to me, where's your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Seeking God often looks like a fight. It looks like a fight where we have to reject the counterfeits and choose to trust the real king again. In the good and in the bad, we have to seek the Lord. The second way that we can avoid becoming like Saul, learning from the, his warning passage is to become an expert in repentance. Repentance is not a one-time act. The godliest people are not the people that never have occasion to repent. The godliest people are the ones that repent a lot, that repent quickly, that repent meaningfully. When we look at Saul's life, there's really no reason to think that he ever repented of anything that he did in his rebellion. Now, Saul consistently had regret and remorse, 
But regret is not the same thing as repentance. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. They look the same on the outside, but they are not. And this is so difficult to diagnose. Maybe among friends. Parents diagnosing it in your kids. Especially diagnosing it in ourselves. I want to challenge you to think about repentance in three different elements. The first element is that of the intellectual. There is a change in your thinking. You had one way of thinking, but now you see it differently because you have knowledge of your sin. The necessary component here is that you feel guilt, personal guilt. I was wrong in how I thought about this. The second element is emotional. There's a change in how you feel. This is manifest in being sorry for what you've done. You've committed sin against a holy God and you have regret. The third element is volitional. There is a change in what you purpose to do. There is a decided inward turning away from sin and turning to God. This entails a disposition to fall on the mercy of God and seeking pardon from sin, to be cleansed from the stain of your sin. Now, all three of these elements are crucial. If we only experience repentance intellectually without a change of feeling or purpose, then we have not repented biblically. We may give the impression of repentance, but we're just fearful of judgment and punishment. We do not yet hate our sin. If we emotionally feel differently about our sin, but we do not accompany that emotion with volition, then we're experiencing worldly sorrow and not godly sorrow. Tell me, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Sell everything that you own. Give it to the poor. That man walked away sad because he was so rich. Worldly sorrow only leads to death. When you're thinking about your own repentance, give consideration in these categories. Am I thinking differently about this sin that used to have its hooks in me? Do I feel differently about this sin that used to give me so much pleasure? Have I purposed in my heart to turn away from this sin because I know it's wrong and I hate it? None of this is a work that we do to make up for our sin. There's this poisonous thought that's in Roman Catholic doctrine that says that repentance is an outward work, that you have to do it to satisfy your sin. Friends, there's only ever one way to satisfy our sin. It's by putting our sin on Jesus by faith. The only works that we're relying, are, relying on are Jesus's spotless record and his resurrection. The invitation of the gospel to non-Christians is to put your wholehearted trust in this Jesus, to turn from sin, to repent, because you see that Jesus is better. Christian, the reason you repent is because of what God has done in you. When you were made new in your conversion, the just judge put a stamp on you. Righteous. There's no condemnation now. How can it be? 
Every day I keep sinning. Every day I keep falling in new and unique ways. Repentance for Christians is beautiful. We don't repent to get forgiveness. We repent because we have forgiveness. We repent because we've been bought at a price. So we repent because Jesus gave everything to us. Church, we need to become experts in repentance. We need to be motivated that it's the Lord's kindness that leads us to this repentance. We repent because we're loved by a gracious and merciful Father. The gospel of a self-genuine, self-giving, genuine king is our motivation. And this morning we have a reminder of the extent of our king's sacrifice. He gave us everything. He laid down his life for us. The table set before you this morning is for citizens of heaven. They've pledged their allegiance to Jesus. And Paul warns us not to come to the table in an unworthy manner. Paul doesn't say that the unworthy can't come. Because in truth, this table is for sinners. This table is for every kind of sinner except one. Unrepentant sinners. If you're a non-Christian here, we ask you to pass on the table to trust in Jesus instead. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, do you have sin in your life that you need to repent of? If so, deal with that before you take the elements. The table reminds us that our king has come and he's coming again. I'm going to pray and afterwards the ushers are going to come forward. As they're passing the elements, I want you to hold them to consider. Give contemplation to the word this morning. Do you have sin in your life to repent of? Are you looking to a counterfeit and you need to turn your face to Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us your son. Jesus, thank you for, for holding nothing back. That though you came the genuine king and you were rejected as a counterfeit, you have won us. You have redeemed us. We have been rescued. And so we give you thanks. This morning as, as we remember your sacrifice, I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, that you would bring conviction uh, where needed, that you would bring encouragement where needed, that you would give us hope and comfort where needed. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank mm -hmm. you.